0: please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Daniel where we resume our study this morning. We find ourselves in chapter three, uh, probably one of the more famous chapters in Daniel with regard to in the the whole of chapter three, of course, is the fiery furnace. And this is a story, a narrative that uh, Christians, most Christians know and are very, very familiar with when it comes to Daniel. When we think of Daniel, probably we tend to think of two things with regard to how we think of Daniel. We think of Daniel... Uh, one, we think of the fiery furnace with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Curiously, in this particular narrative, their Babylonian names are used, whereas in other places Daniel tends to use their Hebrew names. And then we also think of the lion's den. I'm not saying that you, the other things don't come to your mind. Of course, the write, the handwriting on the wall, for some of us is also something we think of when it comes to Daniel. But Typically, when we think of Daniel, the stories that stick out in our minds are the fiery furnace and the lion's den, and for, for good reason, of course, because in each of those stories, it's the same question that's being answered. Who is supreme? What god is supreme, or what man is supreme? Is, is the king supreme? Is the king's decree supreme? Is the king's political power Supreme, or is Yahweh supreme? That's that's the answer. That's the question we come back round to again and again in Daniel. Of course, we will repeat that question over and over because that is the heart of Daniel is solving this issue. Why can Daniel and his companions really trust in Yahweh? Why can they put their lives into his hands and say, but even if he doesn't deliver us, we will not turn? Well, for the primary or reason that they understand in their minds and hearts, in fact, let us just say this, they are convinced, they are convinced in their minds and hearts that Yahweh is supreme. And so even if it requires their life and service to him, they will give it because of the goodness, supremacy, and power of God of Yahweh. Because keep in mind, dear friends, I've often said so often humans look at the power of death as a real power. Of course, we've we've come against that with the idea or the notion rather that real power is seen in the capacity to give life. That's where real power is seen. And so often, especially through years of persecution, and this has been since the faith has been a thing, God's people has been persecuted. And the persecutors often think if we kill them, that torture, that death will be enough to shut the mouths of other people. It never works that way. Even when God's people are killed, like if their life is taking, taken, what begins to happen? The message flourishes. Ask how, how it worked out in countries like China where they started trying to kill people just to silence the message. We've seen a revival of epic proportions because you can't kill the message of God. God. You may kill the messenger, but you can't kill the message. And the messenger, the faithful messenger, understands that their life has already been laid on the altar. And if it's taken, it's taken. But the one thing you can't take is the truth of the Lord. And God bless Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah for making that stand. And here, several thousand years later, we're still reading about it. That story is still moving forward. If it doesn't give you chill bumps, it should. It does me. Well, this morning we find ourselves in Daniel 3, the beginning of this, laying the foundations for what was expected of these people who were subservient to Nebuchadnezzar. And it's, we're looking at what becomes a classic case of gross idolatry. So this morning, without further delay, let us turn our attention to the Word. We're going to study a short portion today just to get the foundation for the rest of this chapter. So we're just looking at verses 1 to 7. So beloved of God, please turn your hearts and your minds now to the word of God. This is his infallible, perfect, inscrutable word. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music all the people's nations languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that king nebuchadnezzar had set up so ends the reading of god's word may he add his blessing please pray with me one moment father thank you for your word we come hungry this morning we come thirsty we come hungry and thirsty for something that this world cannot fill none of us have a hunger and thirst that this world or any other thing within it can fill it can only be filled by you and so we come today to drink deeply from your fountain. We come to eat our fill at your table. And I pray that you would bless this time. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. You know, I doubt the name Paul Schneider means that much to you. You may be familiar with a word called Schneider or a name, the name Schneider, but I, I would venture a guess that the name Paul Schneider means very little. And it would be lost to us in the annals, of hi- uh, hi- the annals of history except for one primary event. On April the 20th, 1938, in Nazi Germany, they were celebrating Hitler's birthday. And they were doing a tour of some of the prisons, and they happened to be at Buchenwald Prison. And they marched some of the prisoners out there to, as a show to Hitler to venerate Hitler and the flag. Each man was commanded to remove his beret or his cap and to show honor and adulation to the Fuhrer. And the men obediently did it, except as they went down the line, one man stood at attention and would not venerate Hitler. His name was Paul Schneider. He was insulted, he was beaten, he was whipped, but he said, I will not worship at the feet of Germany." They didn't kill him, they chose to torture him instead and would march him out to venerate the flag and many beatings took place because he would not bow down to the idol of the state. It's a powerful picture and he's not alone. We could comb through the history of World War II and see many such places where men and women refused. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would be one of them who refused to bow down to the idolatry of the state for beloved of God, this is not an arbitrary arbitrary thing that's what Germany was They were creating a godlike state for people to worship, for people to look to, for people to give praise to. Hitler saw himself not just as a man, but something supernatural. He thought that of himself. And he didn't want people to congratulate him. He wanted people to worship him. I can think of no better example of how all-encompassing idolatry actually is. The idol demands your life. And sometimes people give their lives to say no. Idolatry is a dangerous, dangerous business. Of course, idolatry always presents us with a choice, doesn't it? Idolatry is the choice of pragmatism and pleasure. Why did the children of Israel flirt with Baal worship in the Old Testament? Well, they did so. Because in that era, or in that time, in that place, Baal was the god of fertility. Do you want good crops? You want your wheat to grow? You want your barley to grow? You want the rains to come? Do you want to have a big family? Well, worship Baal. It's total pragmatism. It's complete and total pragmatism. This is what will make your life simpler. So do it. Idolatry does that. That's what it does. It either plays to the pragmatic side of us. This will simplify, or it plays to the or, or plays to the pre- uh, pleasure side of us this will feel good. That's what idolatry does. It appeals to these two sides of us that are very powerful forces in our lives. What's easy and what feels good, that's exactly where idolatry hits us. And so often in the moment, it seems, it seems harmless. It, it actually seems beneficial. Well, if this will help, if this will make life easier, and if it feels good, why not do it? Why not do it? Well, as benevolent as idolatry may seem in a moment, it is always, always, always exclusive. It's not going to share you with other people or with other things. It's not going to share you with other gods. But Brad, you've even said that all these, these former nations were polytheists, had many gods. That's right. That's right. Many expressions of a central type of power. Idolatry doesn't share you. It's not out to help you have a nice life. It's exclusive. It makes demands. It completely enslaves. It will suffer no rivals. We see here in Daniel 3, idolatry becomes a zero-sum game. You fall down in front of my image and you worship or you die. Beloved, there's no gray area in there. That's completely black and white. Fall down and worship or die. That's your choice. And so when we start looking at it, we think, well, maybe that's unique in history. Well, let me assure you, it's not. It's not. It's not unique now. The idolatries that we struggle with now aren't trying to help you. They're not trying to make your life better. They're not trying to make you have it easier. They're trying to destroy you. They're trying to consume me. They're trying to take us down to a place that we do not want to go and leave us there to die. That's what idolatry does. That's what it seeks to do. And I love how Daniel, that Daniel records this because we're getting the very heart and uh, and core of what idolatry truly is. Worship this idol or suffer this horrific death. And so as I said, this is not merely antiquated barbarism. Though the idols may have changed, though the look of it may may have changed to some degree, the nature of idolatry remains the same. Yes, you might not be bowing down in front of an image on the plain of Dura or on the plain of Shinar under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, but beloved of God, make no mistake, there are things that are vying for your heart that want to control it, that want to take you on a ride that you don't want to go on that want to lead you to a place of utter destruction. Ask anybody who destroys their life. You've heard me say this before. Ask them, when you set out on this journey, were you thinking, hey, I hope my life is destroyed by the end of this? No one will say yes. If they do, they need help. They have deeper mental issues. No one sets out to destroy their lives. That's what makes idolatry so crafty. All you do is bow to me now, and you'll have the life you want but you pay for it again and again and again and again until all you have is nothing. That's what idolatry does. We speak of idolatry, we need to speak of it as something that is futile, that is empty, without substance, vain. But we also need to remember that it's not just futile, not just futile, it's fatal, that the ultimate goal is, is death. And we see this very clearly in a text before us, that Nebuchadnezzar's threats of death and punishment are for those who do not fall in line, who don't worship the idol like they're supposed to. That's what he promises. And this is not unique to history. I've already said this. This is a standard practice for what is false. Beloved, understand the lie allows no competition. The lie makes no room for tolerance. The lie will not show mercy the lie has one objective, one. And it has the same objective for its detractors and the same objective for those who buy It's completely consume them until there's nothing. That's what we're dealing with. That's why these seven verses are some of the most important verses in scripture as they lay the heart of idolatry bare. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see. and I've already said it, namely, idolatry is both futile and fatal that idolatry is both futile and fatal. Speaking of World War II history, around the same time that Hitler was doing what he was doing, a man by the name of Joseph Stalin was also doing unspeakable things in Russia. In the late 1930s, there was a conference to honor the dictator. They were honoring him for his greatness. They were honoring him for all the stuff that you honor idols for. And at this time, When they mentioned his name, the arena erupted in applause. Everybody stood up and clapped. Well, something happened. Nobody wanted to be the first to stop. And so they just kept on because they didn't want to be looked at as the person who was less enthusiastic. Well, an elderly man in the crowd finally got tired after several minutes of clapping and standing. He stopped clapping and he sat down. His name was taken. He was arrested the next day and never heard from again. Why? Why? because he didn't give the idol of Russia enough worship and veneration. When we start thinking about idolatry, you may say, Brad, that's just simply war brutality, and it is, but we need to understand the undercurrent of idolatry that runs there. When men like dictators like Nebuchadnezzar or or Adolf Hitler or, or Joseph Stalin or Vladimir Lenin, any of these people we want to throw out there, when they set themselves up as a supreme leader, they're not doing it to be benevolent, They're doing it to say, I am, and I'm not trying to be sacrilegious here, I'm telling what history has taught us. I am great. I am powerful. I am your God, and you will bow down to me, or you will die. And so uh, history teaches us again and again and again and again what idolatry does. When we're looking at it here it comes in the form of this great image. That's what we're dealing with. This The rest of this chapter, the whole of chapter 3, is consumed with the great image and the ripple effect it had in Babylon and with Judean men that are mentioned here. And however enticing and however hopeful idolatry seems, we've already said it, it leads to emptiness, it leads to death, it doesn't give what it promises. What is a great example of this? I've used this before, but it bears repeating, is Addiction. Think of addiction, something I have a lot of history with. You know you know my testimony. You know that I had an addiction to pain pills and, and most any drugs I could get my hands on. But what does addiction do to you? It promises this good time on the front end, and at first it's fun. At first it's fun. It seems, yeah, this is great. This is awesome. It feels good. I'm having a good time. I'm laughing. But what the addiction doesn't tell you is, hey, eventually... You're going to be willing to hurt the people you love most for the pleasure of this. You're going to be willing to break the law for the pleasure of this. You're going to be willing to put yourself in the pathway of death for the pleasure of this. And by the way, it's going to take everything from you. It's going to take your relationships. It's going to take your dignity. It's going to take your money. It's going to take the last shred of humanity you have as you see people as obstacles in order to fulfill this. Beloved, I can think of no better example of idolatry than addiction. Its primary motive is to catch you and kill you. And that's what idols would do with us. The image that is mentioned here several times, right in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. That word image in the Aramaic is very familiar. It is the same word from chapter 2. When Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar about the dream that he's had, he uses the word, uh, a lot of Bible translations say statue. Literally in Aramaic, it is image. And literally in Aramaic is the same word, as I said last week, that is used for idolatry for an idol. And so I don't think that Daniel is even trying to be subtle here by saying this great image from chapter 2 was a picture of an idol, and now this is an idol. This is not just an image. This is not just a statue. This is an object for worship, which is made clear a few verses down. So we have this idol, and it's interesting that we have this image, the same word. What is Nebuchadnezzar doing? He's using this idol to speak of his greatness. He's using this idol to, to establish his enduring greatness. I want you to think about the, the parameters of this thing. It is 90 feet high. The ESV says 60 cubits. That's about 90 feet. It is 90 feet high, nine stories high, and nine feet wide. It's enormous. It is a monstrosity. You can't miss this thing. And just to make sure that you can't miss it, we're told that he set it up on the plain of Dura. Why the plain? A plain would be a flat place, where for miles you can see this thing that is probably when the sun comes up, it's gonna glint. You'll see this thing from everywhere. You will not be able to get around noticing this monstrosity out in the plain of Dura, close to the province or city of Babylon. So when we look at this, it's interesting that we have an image, holy of gold. Let's understand this. It's probably not pure gold through and through. It's probably a statue, some sort of uh, structure that was overlaid with gold. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream. What did Daniel tell him? You're the head of gold, and then you had the silver, the bronze, the iron, and the clay. Is it possible that what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is saying, well, I'll make sure that the head of gold endures forever and makes a whole statue, a whole image of gold. So now the whole thing is gold, and this whole thing of gold is people are going to worship at the feet of Babylon, at the feet of Nebuchadnezzar, not anywhere else. Nebuchadnezzar is doing something here that is not so subtle, establishing his own greatness or at least trying to. But it's also, there's another comparison we can make here. We don't have to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 11, the first nine verses of that chapter, you have the building of the tower of Babel. What is it? It is a structure very high that men built from the ground up into the heavens. Where was it located? On a plain. Why on a plain? So that people could do it. The plain of Shinar, the place that Babylon would become. So that people would see it for miles. And what would they think? How great is God? No. What they were meant to think is look what man can accomplish. Look at the glory of man on display. When we talk about building tall structures on a plane in the Old Testament to show the greatness, in Genesis and Daniel, it has very little to do and nothing to do with Yahweh and everything to do with the enduring greatness of man. So we're seeing the battle. There's the city of God and there's the city of man. Nebuchadnezzar is one more person, one more soul in the battle when the serpent told Eve in Genesis chapter 3, or God told Eve rather, in Genesis chapter 3, that she would be the seed of the woman, would be in conflict with the seed of the serpent. You see this worked out again and again and again and again. And here we're watching it. The seed of the serpent, i.e. Nebuchadnezzar, this person who is for his own greatness, for his own religion, for his own glory, is setting himself up as an object to be worshiped, to thwart the truth of God. Well, as we know, the folks who built the Tower of Babel were judged. Nebuchadnezzar will ultimately be judged. What do we take away from this? that when we try to set ourselves up as something that we're not, when we try to put ourselves in the place of God, there is one end to that, and it's judgment. It is judgment. Well, as we continue, it's interesting, and I tried to put a little emphasis on how many times you find this phrase in this chapter, the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It is repeated, in fact, in these seven verses six times. That very phrase, six times in seven verses. Now, when you see something that's repeated like that, when you're studying the Bible, it should stand out to you. There's a point being made here. What is the point? Well, it's interesting. Nebuchadnezzar stood this image up. What is Daniel telling us? This image, this greatness, this thing to be worshiped, it's not self sufficient. It can't even stand itself up. It has to be stood up by a man. It has to be said. It, had to be, it has to be placed. And there's an irony here. There's a, there's a deep irony here that we cannot miss. The irony is that this image can't stand. It can't walk. It can't speak. It can't do anything. In fact, it is totally reliant on people. And yet, we are told that the image that can't move, can't stand, can't walk, it demands people to praise and worship and bow down. What is, what is Daniel doing for us? He's showing us the in, insanity the silliness of idol worship. Oh, you mean to tell me this this thing that had to be fashioned by hands, that had to be stood up so you can see it? It can't talk to you. It can't move things. It can't do anything for you. It can just stand there and receive praise. This is your God? It's the silliness of idolatry that Daniel is noting for us, and it's important that we see that That repetition of had set up, had set up, had set up, had set up reminds us this thing is powerless. Idolatry does possess one power, the power to kill, to rob. But all the things that these idols promise, they never deliver. They never deliver. And, beloved, whatever whatever idolatry you're struggling with today, and I'm going to guess that you're struggling with something, some form of idolatry, I promise you, the Word of God reminds us, it will not give you what you seek. It will not. It will take, take from you, and take from you, and take from you, and take from you. When we look at this and we see the fatality part of it, we can't, be, we can't also miss the futility of it. How do you hold something as sacred that completely depends on you? How do you hold something to be sacred and holy and valuable and worship worthy? That completely depends on us. You can't. There is no hope there. There is no life there. Daniel is saying this is futile. This will not come to a good end. And, of course, the fiery furnace is the great test to this. Who is powerful? Kind of like Elijah on Mount Carmel, remember? He does this with with the prophets of Baal. Call louder, dance more. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's gone to the bathroom. Cut yourselves, harm yourselves. Yell like an idiot and see if he'll answer you. And then the test is complete when Elijah makes the prayer to Yahweh and Yahweh sends fire. Who is true? Who is supreme? Who is great? Our God is true. Our God is supreme. Our God is great. Idolatry is futile but let me tell you what idolatry really is. At the end of the day, this is what idolatry truly, really is. All it really is, is a vehicle to worship yourself. Because you see, what the idol promises is to make you great, to depend on yourself, to depend on your ingenuity, to depend on your goodness, to depend on yourself, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps for you to be the self-made man or the self-made woman. That's what it's doing for you. I've said this to you before, but Satanism as a religion, and it is one, and satanic verses, if you ever read the satanic verses that were written as the guidebook for Satanism, do you know what it encourages you to do? It does not encourage you to worship Satan, it doesn't encourage you to pray to Satan, it encourages you to worship yourself. It takes a lot of the verses from the Bible and rewards them to put yourself in place of Yahweh or in place of Christ. So we would so the satanist would say in the context of John 14:6, I the man am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I have all I need in me. I don't need you. I don't need a god. I don't need a supernatural power because I am sufficient. I cringe to even think those thoughts, but they're there. I've read through satanic verses before, and it is nothing but blasphemy. Because, you see, the ultimate goal of idolatry is not the object itself. It's to draw you away from the truth into a lie, a lie that says, I'm good enough. I am strong enough. I am all that I need. A very subtle philosophy that has worked its way into our world and corrupted the minds and hearts of many. I'm independent. I need nothing. It's interesting here, we, one of the things that we see is the pro- proliferation of the names, both in, in two and three verses 2 and 3, the re- repetition of the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and then he repeats that again. What you would miss if you weren't kind of steeped in ancient writing would be that the writer here, Daniel, is kind of making fun of these people, by, by re, it's a rhetorical device of saying, all these men of importance come to bow down to this. And then the second verse is like, yes, you heard me correctly. All these men of power, all these men of greatness are about to go out into the plain of Dura and look like fools bowing themselves down in front of this big golden image. He's making fun. He's showing the futility of idolatry. Isn't it interesting? It is standing, they are falling. That's what the text tells us. False religion is that counterfeit. This lifeless thing demands that these life-filled people do the very things it can't even do. Can you imagine serving a God like that? And just by way of just a little side note, doesn't really have any bearing, as far as what the image is, we actually don't know. Some people think it was an image of Nebuchadnezzar, some people think it was an image just uh, of one of the gods of Babylon, some people think it was just this kind of totem pole looking thing that was covered with gold. It doesn't matter what it is and we don't know. We don't need to know. We have all the information that we need right here to understand that it's counterfeit. It's, it's a secular religion. Nebuchadnezzar is doing exactly what Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini, and even Napoleon tried to do to some degree, is to get people to bow down at the religion of the state and the state's power and nothing else. It's a secular religion. Yes, there is some sacredness in it within the confines of that, but they're not trying to win people over to the truth. They're trying to win people over to the pragmatism and the pleasure that the state can offer. And human beings are so susceptible to that idolatry But he doesn't just grab in these ranking officials. He also, he tries to unite the people, peoples, nations, and languages. That is language very reminiscent of the book of Revelation, where tribes, nations, and tongues. Christ will unite the people from all different tribes, nations, and tongues. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to unite people from all different tribes, nations, and tongues. Christ around the power of God, the truth of the Lord, sovereign Nebuchadnezzar around himself. Yes, the seed of the serpent is at war with the seed of the woman. He tries to unite these people around himself, around his state, around his accomplishments, not, not objective truth. And there's no mistaking the command in verse 5 that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. There's no mistaking what that is. It's a clear violation of the first two commandments that we have in Exodus You shall worship the Lord your God only, and you shall not use an image to worship the Lord. Two very clear violations. This is not innocuous, this is not something that is not a big deal. Whatever Daniel puts up with and and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, whatever they put up with to live in a Babylonian culture, they understand fundamentally that I can't bow down in front of this thing because it violates the very covenant I have made with the Lord and the Lord has made with me. And so the question is, is this set up as death is offered as the only uh, uh, course for those who refuse, what will they do? Will they be faithful or will they do what's expedient? will they love God more than their own lives? And this is a decision we still have to, or a question we still have to ask ourselves. Will I love the Lord more than I love this life, than I love my life, than I love the things of my life? Not do I neglect them, but do I love God more? Will I love him more in a moment? Will I live for him? beloved of God, the decision is always before us. The decision is always before us to do what is easy or to do what is right. And I say this as a man who loves to choose what is easy because what is easy momentarily feels good and it's an easier path. But as I grow, as I mature, I'm learning that to do what is right is the harder course, but it's the better one. The question, will we do what is easier? Will we do what is right? And the stakes are always going to be high. The stakes are always going to be high, but it boils down to this one idea, really. Will we trust God enough in a moment? Will you trust God enough in a moment? Will Brad trust God enough in a moment? Will our children, as we've tried to lead and disciple and shepherd them, will they trust God enough in a moment? And beloved, um, you know me. I don't think it's easy. I've spent many a time, many an hour up here talking about how hard life can be and how some of these commands, it's easy to read them on a page and applying them is exceedingly difficult. So it's not as if I'm saying it's easy and I don't want anybody to walk away thinking that. It's not easy. Sometimes it's infinitely hard, but it's right. But it's right. And that sometimes can be the only comfort we have is knowing that while I did the hard thing, I know that I did the right thing. While I had an opportunity to ease my, or choose ease for myself, I chose glory for Christ. And that's the choice that's before us, especially when it comes to idolatry. As he says here, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. So Babylon is known, and actually archaeology has proven, that they had these big kilns set up around the city and they, where, they, where, they baked, where they baked bricks, where they made bricks for building. And so the idea of a fiery furnace being present there is actually very true. They were. They were present. Archaeology has found them in the city, more than one, and they were huge. And so what Nebuchadnezzar is offering to them, you can bow down and worship and choose easy, or you can do what you think is right, and we're going to burn you alive. That's what they chose. That, that was the choice before the people. Do, it, do what you want, but you're going to be burned alive if you don't do what I want. And so not worshiping the idol meant death. There it is. It meant death. A physical picture of a spiritual reality. But isn't it interesting? Do what I say or we'll burn you with fire. Make a stand for the Lord and burn with fire now, but experience glory with him choose idolatry now and choose glory for yourself now but experience the condemnation of the Lord that is eternal later when you're talking about something temporal or something that's eternal I'll stick with eternal not because it's easy, not because I want to be burned in a fire, I don't but because it's right, you know there's an old cliche you can pay me now or you can pay me later you're always going to pay. And I would rather pay now for the glory of God than pay later for the glory of Brad, because the glory of Brad leads one place, and that is rejection from the Lord. Beloved, we live in a culture, this culture, I mean, seven is culture. It, is the, it was the culture then, it is the culture now. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples and nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There it is. That's the culture we live in. It is. It's the culture we live in. What does the culture say? The culture says fall. You fall down and worship like you're supposed to because this is what we do. What does the Lord say? The Lord says, no, 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 you make a stand for me you stand for me in this culture. You stand for me in this culture. What is culture going to do, beloved? What is culture going to do? Culture, they'll bully God's people. They will bully God's people, and they will call us all sorts of names. They'll say, only bigots don't fall. You bigot, you fall. If you don't fall, you're a bigot. Oh, yes, now we've gotten into ad hominem. It's it's that logical fallacy that says, if I can't attack your ideas, I'm just going to attack you. It's stupid. Don't fall for it. Let dumb people make that mistake okay? And I'm not trying to insult anybody. But I get fired up real quick about it. I can feel my face flushing. <laughs> only, only bigots don't fall, they'll tell us. Or another one. Fall and worship at the image because only hate-filled people don't bow down to the gods of this culture. You're hate-filled. You're hateful if you don't bow down to our gods. Or one of my favorites. Only cowards refuse to get on the right side of history. Yeah, people are going to remember you, and you're going to look like an idiot if you don't bow down to our gods and culture. And beloved, it goes and it goes and it goes. What will we do? Well, let me suggest a better way. We live in a world where culture tells people, take a seat, don't stand up, go with the flow. We have a God who stands outside of this world, who says, don't take a seat. In a culture that takes a seat, I'm calling you to stand up. In a culture that bows before what is false and evil and reckless, I'm telling you to stand up. In a culture that glorifies division, hatred, injustice, and all kinds of ethical, uh, wretched ethical behavior, God says, take a stand for what is true the Christian, the one who serves the Lord, should love justice. They should love love. They should love people, but they should love God ultimately. And loving people when we love God is going to look a little differently than culture says. Loving justice when we love God is going to look differently than what our culture says. That means we can't fall for false dichotomies, easy lies, and arguments that don't lead us back to the gospel. What is the rescue for our culture? It's not idolatry, and it's not giving in, it's not conceding false ideas for the hope of maybe having a conversation. It is standing on truth, even when it's hard, and saying the thing that must be said even when you're called bigot or hate-filled or on the wrong side of history, because idolatry seemed like it was on the right side of history to the Babylonians. They were eradicated, and then so were the Persians, and then so were the Greeks, and then so were the Romans, and so forth and so on. There is one institution that has withstood the test of time that has not been eradicated, that even in the face of death, it blooms. The kingdom of God. And so that is where we stand. Idolatry seeks to kill no matter what it promises. We remember the stories of abductors when I was a kid we would hear the stories of, of abductors, and of course the story was always kind of the same. They offered some kid, you know, candy or, or, or a treat or, or a puppy or whatever, you know. They offer some other gift, hey, just come get in the car, and it happened. It really did. I'm not trying to make light of it. Those things happened. When we think about the abductor, what were they doing? I've got this really shiny, candy for you. I've got this really cute puppy for you. If you'll come with me, it's the promise of something pleasurable with the primary goal of robbing that little soul of life. That's its purpose. That's what it wants to do. Idolatry, it always seems shiny. It always seems bright. It always seems full of potential. And it only offers you a version of yourself, though. It only offers you a version of yourself that can't deliver you, that can't give you peace, That can't give you the life you seek. Oh, it'll offer it. Oh, yeah, 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 you'll have all that. You'll have all that. Until we get there and we realize how empty and lonely it is. Beloved of God, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, offers us a better way. I said this earlier. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And he says, and I will give you rest. He gives us rest. So yes, like Bonhoeffer before us, the gospel does bid us to come and die. Come and die to our flesh. Come and die to this world. Come and die to all those things that seem like they might give life and live in the death of Christ who gives life where death reigns. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. It's power. It's beautiful. It's hard. It's hard to consider these these topics of idolatry and wrath and And living in a culture that is dead set on seeking to dismantle the truth. But we serve a God who says, I am the truth. And he can't and you can't be dismantled. So, Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We give our hearts and minds and lives to you. Forgive us for choosing idolatry. And may those idols come tumbling down even today, even right now. May we make decisions to snatch those idols down in the power of the Holy Spirit and sing of the goodness of God, and remember of your faithfulness, that we too might live faithfully with you. Thank you for empowering us to do all these things, as through Christ we pray. Amen.